from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome to the CER Bulletin podcast. I'm Beth Oppenheim, a researcher here at the CER, and today I'll be talking to Ian Bond, Director of Foreign Policy, Christian Ordendahl, Chief Economist, and Camino Mortera Martinez, Senior Researcher, on the line from Brussels. Hello, everyone. Hi. And every two months, the CER publishes a bulletin issue on three important European topics. And I'll be asking you each three quickfire questions, and then you'll have five minutes to brief listeners on your argument. So today, we're going to be talking about Trump's foreign policy, Europe's economic slowdown, and the rise of the far right in Spain. So Ian, let's start with you and Trump. We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. That's Trump at the UN General Assembly last September. So, Ian, what have we learned about Trump's foreign policy views in the last two years? Well, we've learned that uh, Trump doesn't really like alliances. He thinks that they weaken the US, that uh, US allies are a burden and that they take more than they give. He doesn't like free trade because he thinks that America's trading partners are always cheating the US. And he doesn't like international organizations, which he sees as fettering U.S. power and its ability to uh, to act unilaterally. And we've learned that one thing that he does like is international strongmen, whether that is Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping. So naturally, this departure from convention worries and unnerves U.S. allies. What has been the response from the EU and its member states so far? Well, I'd say there have been two responses, really. Uh, One is the sort of Franco-German response, which is uh, to throw up their hands in horror, say, you know, this is the end of the transatlantic relationship. I'm caricaturing slightly, but uh, to say, you know, things are going very badly in the transatlantic relationship. Europe must achieve strategic autonomy. We need um, more European defense cooperation and so on. So that's one, one answer is, you know, let's say that the Americans are now no longer reliable partners, keep them at arm's length and do more things on our own. The second response is the Polish response, which is, oh my God, the Americans are going to leave Europe. That We can't afford for that to happen under any circumstances. Uh, let's offer them $2 billion to set up a, a military base in Poland, and then at least we will be all right, even if the rest of Europe isn't. So th- those have been caricaturing the two responses to Trump's foreign policy. I guess there's also a British response, which is just to keep sending ministers to uh, Washington and repeating special relationship as many times mm-hmm. as you possibly can in one interview. So there's been quite a bit of divergence then between different European governments. What about if you were to be briefing top EU leaders and institutions, what would you say to them? How should they be responding? And does Trump have a point that Europeans should be spending more on defence? Well, you're absolutely right. And that's where, where I would start. I would start by saying to the Europeans, regardless of whether the Americans are staying in Europe or pulling out, 
Europe needs to take its own defence and security more seriously. The percentage of GDP that is being spent on defence by almost all European nations falls far short of the 2% target that NATO leaders agreed on in 2014. And while some countries are making progress towards that target, they may meet it by the deadline of 2024, which uh, which NATO set. Uh, there are quite a few, and above all, Germany, which are going to fall woefully short of the of the target. So there's no point in talking about strategic autonomy unless you're prepared to invest in the capabilities required to give yourself strategic autonomy. So it seems to me that you know they should focus on the substance, not on the rhetoric. They should remember that actually there are still a lot of people in the US Congress, in the US military, in the think tank community, people who have worked with NATO in NATO, who actually still have a strong attachment to the transatlantic relationship and who will work to try to limit the damage that Trump can do over the remainder of his term of office. So Europeans should not throw away the achievements of the last 70 years. Equally, they shouldn't think that by cutting bilateral deals with Trump, they are helping the long-term security of Europe. Uh, the alliance works better if it's all of its members working together, not a series of hub-and-spoke relationships between individual countries in Europe and the White House. So the EU shouldn't get sucked into Trump's bilateralism then? I think that's exactly right. Bilateralism is, it seems to me, almost as dangerous as splitting the US and Europe from each other completely. Thank you very much, Ian. That was very succinct. We're going to move on now from Trumpian foreign policy to talk about the state of the European economy. Christian, Europe's economy is slowing down. Why? So it's not only Europe that's slowing down. It's a, it's a, it's a slowdown in the world economy. And the question is, of course, what, what, what's behind that slowdown? So the United States and China are arguably the main drivers of, of that slowdown at the moment. In the U.S., Trump had stimulated the economy via tax cuts, and that had the predictable effect of stimulating the U.S. economy to an extent that it didn't need at the time. So the Federal Reserve, the U.S. central bank, kept raising interest rates, which increased the value of the dollar and increased U.S. demand for imports. So in a way, the U.S. and Trump were stimulating the world economy and the Europe was partly a beneficiary of that. But that has now largely run its course. So the US is returning to normal. And so that stimulus for, for Europe is running out. And China is a bit of a different story. China has been growing at rates that are unprecedented for a country that rich. So usually poorer countries tend to have high growth rates if they're growing well, but China is not a poor country. It's a middle-income country. And so the growth rates of China are very high. But this is now slowing down. China is trying to rebalance, as we call it, the economists call it, away from the high investment rates and, and export-driven growth model to a more domestically driven growth model. That slowdown is, in a way, again, a return to normal, or not return, but a, but a turn toward more normal growth rates. But Europe will be affected by that too, if it slows um, Chinese demand uh, for goods and services around the world. And so... Europe has been growing on its own in the last five years, so it was domestically driven growth. But before that, right after the crisis, it, it was growing mostly f via foreign demand. And so Europe is running a current account surplus of roughly 4% of GDP. And so a world slowdown will disproportionately hit Europe. And that's why I think the return to normal in the US and the slowdown in China will affect Europe disproportionately. And the question is, does Europe have the economic will to, you know, stimulate growth and, and, and grow out of its own? 
Okay. And we should care about this partly because of the political damage that slow growth could inflict on the EU. What are some of the possible political consequences of slow growth? So so Europe in 2019 will be an interesting year, right? Yeah. Um, so we have Brexit, if it goes ahead as scheduled. The Brexit vote already took its toll on the British economy, but in part that was not immediately visible because Europe and the world were going through a high growth. Now, if Brexit happens as scheduled and, and, and the world economy and the European economy slows down, the economic hit of Brexit will be felt much more. And so it will divide an already divided country. In France, we have the protest, protest movement of the Yellow Vests and, and Macron's approval rating are quite low. So if that comes together with an economic slowdown, uh, Macron will probably have trouble getting any further reforms to, through his political process. Then we have the European Parliament election, which already shows that the that populists and, and anti-European forces will gain higher vote shares than in the past. And the more the European economy slows down, that will be worse. So there are quite a number of uh, political challenges ahead for Europe and, and an economic slowdown is making that worse. That makes sense. And what do you think that the EU should be doing and putting in place in order to fight this slowdown? So one, one of the key things of fighting a slowdown is to fight it early. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if we wait until the data definitely confirms that we are slowing down, uh, then it's arguably too late. Um, there are two ways to stimulate the economy. One is fiscal and the other is monetary. Mm-hmm. Monetary policy, the ECB has just ended its large-scale asset purchase program at the end of 2019, and that now already seems premature. Restarting that program is politically a bit difficult. So the ECB has to find other ways to stimulate the economy. And my view is that um, the ECB needs to be much more aggressive in its communication and commitment of what it wants to do and where it wants the European economy and inflation to be. And the fiscal side, Europe's fiscal policy has been a problem since the euro crisis. We have changed the fiscal framework for Europe. But the problem is that fiscal policy in Europe tends to be pro-cyclical, which means not stimulative enough in a downturn and not restrictive enough in a boom. This is where Europe definitely should put a focus and do that quickly to find ways to make it more counter-cyclical, both in the countries where where it's going well, Germany, for example, and in the countries where, where it's not going so well. So these are the two main things where I think European policy needs to change. But the main point I want to bring across is we need to do this early mm. for it to work. So early action, I suppose the question is just whether there's political will to do this before it's become really critical. But I don't think we have time to go into that. So thank you very much for your thank insight, you. Christian. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you very much. So now over to you in Brussels, Camino. Spain has just arrived at the populist party late. That is the argument that you make in your bulletin piece. Vox, a new far-right party, won seats in Andalusia's regional elections in December. So could you tell me a bit about Vox? What are its policies and how does it compare to other populist movements in Europe? Hi, Beth, from a very grey and cold Brussels. (laughs) I was trying to make the joke, you know, that we Spaniards, we have this fame of being you know always late um, and we also have this this fame of being uh, really into parties I was just wondering whether when it came to what we used to call the Spanish exception so uh, Spain not having a populist party was it that we were just late to the populist bash or was it that we actually 
uh, were not going to join. And I think uh, the rise of Vox, uh, a far-right kind of newish party, points uh, on the direction of Spain just simply being late as often. Um, <laughs> Vox, as I say, is a relatively new party. And when I say relatively new, it's because it's come to the attention of policymakers and, you know, commentators only in recent months because they have entered the Andalusian parliament. But they've been there for some years already. They fought European elections 2014 and they were like a bit of a marginal movement, always on the far right and always kind of waving the Spanish flag. When you ask me which kind of policy they have, Vox is actually much less Eurosceptic than other populist parties in Europe. It is becoming a little bit more than it was before, but it hasn't run any of the elections it has done on the basis of, you know, an anti-European agenda. The most radical proposal they have for Europe is to suspend Schengen until there are like better laws so that criminals cannot travel and hinder. And that's something that me, myself, I've been saying uh, for a while. So that's hardly a Eurosceptic claim. However, they are tougher on migration, of course, uh, than they are on Europe. They have this like very wonderful uh, menu of uh, policy options, which will never work, ranging from kicking people out if they commit a crime, uh, people who have been maybe living lawfully in Spain for years, to building a wall along the Spanish enclaves in Morocco, Ceuta, Melilla. And I assume that they also want uh, Morocco uh, to pay for the wall. When it came to entering into a proper governing coalition, which they did in Andalusia uh, in December, they had to tone this down completely. And the only thing that they managed to get um, out of their partners, uh, so PP, the Conservatives, and Ciudadanos, centre-right or centre-centre, um, depending on who you talk to, was basically um, a couple of very vague uh, sentences saying that we need to equip our law enforcement forces better and that we need to reinforce border controls. So I don't think they're particularly populist uh, when it comes to migration. So it's a bit of a different story then to the other populist movements across Europe. And as you say, they're not as Eurosceptic as in other European countries. What was the real appeal of Vox to Andalusians then? I think there are many different answers to that one. People tend to think that because Andalusia, it's obviously a place with a high number of migrants, and especially those places which are like really south, they are also hit very hardly by unemployment. That's the migration question was going to be central in the success of Vox in Andalusia. What does the future hold for Vox? Do you think that it will be able to scale up its success at the regional level to the national and actually even possibly the EU level? To me, you know, when you when you go to Spain, you talk to people, you read stuff, you follow the debate there, you realize that a lot of the political debate evolves around the question of Catalonia. And as opposed to that, you've got those who, as I was saying before, are trying to wave the Spanish flag, the flag of unity and identity. So I think that part of Vox's uh, appeal is that they have no problem whatsoever saying like tough stuff and criticizing the way that mainstream parties have dealt with the Catalonian issue, with the identity issue. They uh, call themselves the true Spanish, if you want. And also they, they have like resuscitated some questions which always have been there in the Spanish political debates, but were a bit forgotten. Things from difference in taxation between regions, 
a lot of the problems that there are with the functioning of the devolved administration, which some people perceive as inefficient and incompetent, but also questions which are a bit more obscure, like domestic violence, and, uh, because lots of people have the feeling that men are being criminalized now, even if they are innocent. The result in Andalusia is likely to be replicated elsewhere, because even though other regions don't have the same problems, Vox has managed to put so many issues on the table that for sure there will be people voting for them for one thing or another. I think Vox, like any other populist party around Europe, is probably going to have good results in the European elections just by the mere fact of how the European elections organize as more of a protest vote than anything else. Now the question is, will there be an alliance of like, like-minded parties which will actually be able to do something in the European Parliament and block decisions and all these sort of things? I think this is the main thing that we should be thinking about in the coming months. Okay, thank you very much, Camino. Brilliant to hear from you. And listeners can read about all of the topics that we've discussed in the latest CER Bulletin issue, which is available on the CER website. So thanks very much for listening. Thanks for calling in, Camino. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.